it's just hard to partner with living creatures to get them to do what you want them to do, to make a soup of a ton of different ingredients and molecules, and then to extract just the one that you want in a purity that can then go into downstream applications. It's really complicated to do. Hey, Carl, how's it going? Good. How about you, Aram? You had a very special day last week. It was your birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday, Aram. I already said it to you, but I'll say it again. It's a big birthday. No, you're the best. Yeah. I know the big 4-0. I think some people were surprised at my age. I don't know if they thought I should have been older or younger. I think younger. If you're seeing me on video, hello. But it was amazing. I just sometimes feel very overwhelmed when I have a party and all my friends are there and the tension's on me. When I made the invite, as you saw, I made it for my 40th, but my husband's 42nd birthday, which is five days later. So it's not just all eyes on me. And everyone knew that it was my big birthday, but it was a great great. party, by the way. Yeah. You saw all my friends, my crazy, fun, interesting friends, you included amongst them. Um, (laughs) That was a fun party. I had a really great conversation with your friend Lace, and we talked about ChatGPT a bunch, which is probably no surprise because ChatGPT has been in the news. They did their first, I guess, developer conference. Sam Altman was out there hawking the new developments in ChatGPT. Have you paid attention? What have you seen different in ChatGPT? I haven't seen much different in my daily use of ChatGPT4, which is just asking questions and prompting it to do certain things. I did see a bunch of things that are coming online, just reviews. I didn't try them, but how there'll be multimedia experiences. So audio, video being consumed by ChatGPT. I don't know if they'll spit it out too. And then not ChatGPT in particular, this is actually coming out of Adobe. They are working on a way to do real-time translation of audio in the voice of the speaker, which, I mean, for us in our podcast, there's biotech hubs all around the world. Could you imagine hearing me speak Chinese? I can imagine it. (laughs) Yeah. And you don't have to learn it. That's the beauty of it. Or pronounce things. It's just the AI does it for me. And we'll be able to share all of these insights with everyone around the world, make it more accessible. So even the people in different parts of the world that speak their native language and English, they still have that level of privilege and accessibility to learn English. But there's billions of people that don't have that luxury. So I'm just so excited to try it out when it comes online. So Adobe, if you're listening, give us early access. I do know someone there, so I'm going to hound him for early access. But I'm so curious to see how people from other cultures that speak different languages as their main language, how they will respond to our content. Yeah, I think it's awesome. The thing that really stood out for me, which I've already started playing with, is this idea of creating your own GPT, which mm-hmm. is what Lace and I were talking about. And after that conversation, I started uploading the text from What's Your Bio Strategy and was going back and forth a little bit with John Cumbers, who's been on this podcast, to kind of develop a GPT based on the content of that. And I think you and I will end up doing the same thing with the transcripts and the people who have been on Grow Everything. So eventually, I think we can imagine a ask, grow everything or learn, grow everything GPT that includes all the people we've interviewed, all their knowledge, and then maybe pulls other knowledge from the web that isn't included in there. I'm still playing around with it, but I think it's super interesting. And I'm very excited about the way that the AI stuff is rolling out. I think I said it last episode that our friend Davide of Officina Bio was at BioEU, which is a big biotech, biopharma conference 
And he said, AI was what everybody was talking about. And there's a long way to go when it comes to applications in drug development, drug discovery, clinical trials, but it's very exciting. Yeah, it is very exciting and the long way to go. I think a lot of it is knowledge amongst everyone in the company. There's a lot of people in companies that are not developers. They might not know the ins and outs and the challenges of incorporating AI into their systems. They hear things in the news and they think it'll happen tomorrow, but that's not the case. Also, the biggest thing is the data. Even when we're talking yeah. about us using ChatGPT for the Grow Everything podcast and the transcriptions, I mean, our transcriptions are transcribed by AI and they don't get everything correct. They don't get names. Yeah, it's like 90% exactly. Yeah, so we'll have to go back and clean all the data because you need good data in to get good data out. So as long as everyone has that strong understanding of where the data is coming from, making sure it's clean, making sure it's labeled correctly, then you're in a good position to start leveraging AI, I guess, for machine learning. So we're getting close to Thanksgiving in the United States. This episode will post on the Friday before, and our next episode will post the day after Thanksgiving, which is a bit shocking. I didn't realize Thanksgiving was so soon until last night, and that freaked me out a little bit. But we continue to attend events. What are you doing for Thanksgiving, Iram? I don't even know. We might try to go to the parade. And oh, wow, anytime, wild. I so mean, Macy's, New York City, Macy's Day Parade, Thanksgiving Day Parade. Yeah. And everyone's like, you're crazy. It's going to be so crowded and it's going to be hard to move around. It's going to be hard to see the balloons. I'm like, well, I know if I go in it thinking it's just going to be a bunch of people and I won't be able to move around. I won't be so disappointed because that's what I was expecting. But luckily, we'll be able to get a good spot just enough to see the balloons and just to see we're there. And it also depends on the weather. And then probably just kicking it low key with some friends here on Thanksgiving. Uh, my family's coming later in the weekend, so they'll be coming up. But yeah, what about you? What are your Thanksgiving plans? Typically, what we do is we hang out at home in the morning and then we drive upstate to north of Albany to my in-laws, which is where we have Thanksgiving dinner. But we usually don't leave the city until like one or so. But usually it's chill out, hang out with family and probably eat a lot. It'll be a nice break from the season of the grind. But then it's the sprint to the end because yeah. <laughs> there's a lot going on. And the end of the year after Thanksgiving is always insane. And you're going to be traveling. We've got a bunch of events coming up. So that's something we want to consider. What events have you gone to? Where are you going? Okay, so last week I was at a healthcare careers event at the Cabelli School of Business at Fordham. It was a very small event. We had a panel of four of us. I was representing biotech, biopharma. Another guy from Brooklyn who works at a stealth startup at Alexandria was also representing the biotech research side. And then we had someone who was much more of a networking expert and had done some work in healthcare as well. So that was a good event. And then this afternoon, I'm hosting a panel on material innovation up in the Harlem Innovation Triangle. There's a lot of new lab space being developed up there. And I think that should be the last event until we come back from Thanksgiving. How about you, Iram? You went to a big event that I was sorry I didn't make last week. Yeah, it was a very swanky event. It was called the Founder-Led Biotour NYC. So it's hosted by Pillar VC. They've had a few of these in different cities around the world. And the purpose is really to get founders that are building biotech companies or are interested in building biotech companies together with VCs, other players in the biotech space. I was there. I saw the familiar faces there. Our friend Alex, who we're interviewing on this podcast, 
was also there. I saw him on the way in. We just laughed at each other when we saw each other because we just constantly see each other at these events. And this is post-interview. So I was like, hey, Alex, great to see you. We just chit-chatted a little bit. We registered together. And I'm like, all right, I'll see you later because I'm not here to talk to you because we had a great conversation on the record on the pod, which we are going to share today. Alex Rose is the co-founder of Cascade Biosciences, which is a cell-free biomanufacturing company. What does that mean, cell-free? Well, when you think about manufacturing with biology, you probably think about using a full cell or yeast or fungus or fungi to make a product. But what if you could take the cell, rip apart its machinery, and only use the parts of the cell that actually produce the product that you're trying to produce? So that's known as cell-free manufacturing. There's several companies that do this. Alex's company is very innovative. And one of the things that they do is they affix enzymes to a surface, and then they can run a liquid that includes a feedstock through that liquid, and then you end up with a product at the other end. So why don't we have Alex tell us about what he's doing? Alex Rose, hello. You're finally hello, on hello. the pod. I'm so happy Welcome that you're here. Welcome to the pod. Great yeah. to be here. Thanks for having me. It's been some time. We've been hanging out with you for over a year now. You've moved to Brooklyn. You're part of the Brooklyn Biotech Mafia, although we still need to initiate you in some capacity. But we love your story. You have such an exciting, interesting experience and the company that you're creating. It's so amazing to be a part of this journey with you, just hearing how you're progressing talked a little bit about you in the intro about what you do. But before we kind of hit off all the work speak, what I would like to actually ask you is what got you interested in biology in the first place? Yeah, I got super lucky to get exposed to the bio revolution in college during my chemical engineer days. I was lucky to have thought leaders in the space teach like intro to bioe, like Drew Endy. I worked on some really interesting undergrad research with a microbe that could consume vinyl chloride the same way we breathe. And I was like, biology is the future. And now thanks to innovations in DNA sequencing, protein folding prediction, we understand how it works better than ever before. And while I love my time in the lab talking to folks about what they're doing, I realized my place was not pipetting. So I pivoted more to the business side, spent a few years as a management consultant, and then joined Zymergen, which was for a while the largest synthetic biology company. And though they were kind of behind the scenes on what they're doing, you know, in 2021, there's over a thousand people working there when they went public. And it was really incredible innovation. They've created billions of dollars of market value that they weren't necessarily able to capture. I think that reconfirmed just how many different industries biology was going to disrupt from electronics and materials to cosmetics, and the list goes on and on. And that just really got me excited to continue to venture the space and make it more economical to do so. I didn't know you did a stint in management consulting. Let's talk about that for a minute. Where did you go and what did you do? What was your big takeaway from being a management consultant? Uh, it's funny you ask that. I was at Bain for three years in the San Francisco office, and I call it, it was a great way to learn the business side, as you will, of organizations. And this is coming also, you know, we're recording this a few days after John Oliver just did a bit on McKinsey and management consultants. I don't know if you saw that. You should. It's super yeah. interesting because management consultants are really everywhere. Every major company probably has teams thinking through that. But what it really taught me how to do was how to work effectively in high-paced, high-stress environments, how to work 
with a number of different teams, how to think about not just what the right answer and change should be for organizations, but who are the right stakeholders and people making those changes and how to navigate those office politics pretty effectively. And that's been super helpful for me as I think about building out our own organization, but also engaging with our customers, engaging with our investors, engaging with people generally in the ecosystem. So it was a busy few years, worked on a broad range of different projects, but kind of imagine a better start to my career on the business side. That's awesome. Can you give us a little more insights onto what happened with Symergen? Because a lot of our listeners might not really know what happened. You mentioned that they raised billions of dollars. It's quite a story. I'm waiting for the Netflix documentary to come out. You and I and Carl have talked a little bit about the specific stories, but can you just share what happened? Yeah. I mean, Zymergen at the time, just two and a half years ago, was the largest Zinbio company. I mean, they raised over a billion dollars. They IPO'd at around a three, four billion dollar valuation around the promise of a new polymer for the electronic space, this product called Hyaline that would go into electronic flexible phones. And there was a long tail of other products that we were making as well. The premise was, of course, to use biology to, to make chemicals, decarbonize an industry, and also unlock completely novel and new, higher performing products as well. And Hyaline failed. And I still remember where I was, August, I believe, of 2021, when the stock dropped overnight. CEO was let go. I think it was a 70% drop, just like that. And 2022 was tough generally for biotech companies. And then the company's stock continued to drop a lot and wasn't able to recover from that huge you know, drop of the product the company IPO'd around. Yeah, that's and so then, crazy. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. And then just to kind of complete that story so that people who don't know know, what was left of Zymergen ended up being acquired by Ginkgo Bioworks. How many people went from what was left of Zymergen to Ginkgo? And how yeah. much IP is there? Yeah. I mean, I think that is still being determined, actually. And on that note, it's been an interesting saga that's continued because, yes, the close happened October 2022, a year ago. But given outstanding legal issues Zymergen's facing, given the huge drop in share price on the public market, Ginkgo allowed Zymergen to actually file bankruptcy. And their assets, I believe, are going on auction as a result in December. So it's still an open question of what happens to the Zymergen IP, even though Ginkgo made that acquisition a while ago. But that being said, from the 1,200 people that were probably around Zymergen in April 21, I think it's less than 100 that are still left at Ginkgo. So truly, That's but amazing. honestly, that has been, I think, incredible for the entire Symbio ecosystem. I think everyone who's listening to this at a Symbio company probably knows someone who worked at Zymergen that's probably on their team because the Zymergen people went everywhere, all over the country, all over the world, bringing with them this billion dollar lesson and what I call of what not to do in the bio economy. And that I believe will just accelerate and grow the entire ecosystem as a result. And I do believe in years from now, we'll be talking about the Zymergen Mafia and the companies that have been created by people who got that incredible lesson of Zymergen. We talked to Josh Robinson of Cocoon Biosciences. I think he's an ex-Zymergen guy too. Maybe you even introduced us to him. I did introduce you to him, yes. Yeah, so there, it's true. And I mean, I feel like maybe from a historical perspective, people don't realize is there was an implosion in the early 2000s with really the first generation of Symbio companies that were focused on creating biofuels. That was at a time when oil was at an all-time high. But then fracking came into play, lowered the cost of oil and the biofuels companies could never compete against oil. So a bunch of them folded and they also seeded what would become 
really the first generation of synthetic biology companies, just like Zymergen, is seeding the next generation. Yeah, we kind of see these lessons time and time again across the industries. Companies rise and fall. And hopefully with Cascade, we can stop that trend as we finally make biology easy to use in industrial settings. Yeah, I definitely want to go into Cascade more. <laughs> and I, but just because the story is so interesting and you of keep course. mentioning these lessons that you've learned. Maybe this is a two-part question. Maybe you can wrap it up in one answer. But why do you think Haleen failed? Was it a product thing or was it a business thing? What is a lesson that you can share with some of our entrepreneurs from the downfall of Zymergen? Yeah. I mean, Hyaline is that kind of focal point, but there's also, I think there's two lessons that I really gleaned from the experience and it's really shaped how I envision building Cascade. I mean, Hyaline was an electronics product. It failed, not technically, technically very much a success. It failed commercially on this front. And I think part of it is our senior leadership. They didn't have those decades of experience in the electronics business. They didn't fully understand this space and they hired the right people. They built the product out, but they still bet the IPO on something they probably didn't fully understand. For me, as I think about Cascade, we're much more platform oriented. We're trying to sell to companies using biology, enable their products to last longer and be cheaper. And that to me is much, I feel, easier than going after all these different verticals, all these different industries that have been around for decades. And it really simplifies our commercial strategy on that front. So that's the one piece of it on the commercial side. It's just really hard. All the industries biology can impact to really understand what's really driving all of those is a challenge for any team trying to be oriented across so many different verticals. And then on the second front, we're going to talk, I'm sure, more about cell-free versus traditional precision fermentation. But it really showed me how hard it is to scale microbes. And there's a ton of companies that you brought on here that are improving that, making it simpler, making it cheaper on the microbial front. But it's still millions of dollars, years of time to tweak these bugs, to get them working effectively in a plate, to move that to tens of thousands or larger leader reactors. And it's just hard to partner with living creatures to get them to do what you want them to do, to make a soup of a ton of different ingredients and molecules, and then to extract just the one that you want in a purity that can then go into downstream applications. It's really complicated to do. And there's so many other reasons. There's a lot of batches that are thrown out because contaminants get in. It's also batch processing. That's not how the vast majority of chemicals are made. They're in continuous flows. And that's where, I'm sure we'll talk plenty more about it, but cell-free really solves a lot of the problems that a traditional fermentation has still had. And the last thing I'll say on that, it really, I believe, will be different tools in the toolbox. I still believe we'll be making enzymes and a lot of biologics from fermentation because microbes are really good at that. But a lot of the smaller molecules, natural products, I think there's huge potential for cell-free to really drive the cost down of, of doing that. So you mentioned partnering with bugs, partnering with microbes and having them produce a compound, a chemical, an enzyme, whatever the case may be. And that is incredibly challenging. Then you have cell-free biomanufacturing where basically you're partnering with parts of the bug, the enzymes that are found inside an organism to create a product. Explain what that looks like in reality. And are you able to do 100 liter rounds? What's the maximum capacity when it comes to cell-free biomanufacturing? And what are some examples of things you're able to make that way? And what are the advantages? I mean, it's a multi-long question, which we can answer over <laughs> multiple questions. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, you started with this big point. It's we're using like, what is it? The yeah. industry is using microbes because of enzymes inside those microbes to transform, in many cases, sugar or other potential feedstocks into the molecule of interest. It's fundamentally these enzymes, these machines inside of the bugs that are working all the magic. Really, the idea of cell free is to take this assembly line inside of microbes, which inside of microbes is alongside hundreds, thousands of other assembly lines, reactions going on. It's chaotic environment. But taking that assembly line that you care so much about, that's doing all the work and just isolating it and focusing on that. What you get with that is higher purity of the product you're creating and a number of other benefits, such as moving to more continuous flows, allowing you to get better yields, dropping the cost down of doing the reaction. The issue is microbes are really good at making these enzymes and when they're outside of that environment, they're pretty fragile. And for anyone who has worked with enzymes, store them at negative 20 degrees C, hard to imagine them being at huge factory scales for long periods of time. And that's what we're trying to do at Cascade. It's really take enzymes, stabilize them in my co-founder's innovation, what we call our body armor for enzyme and keep them lasting really, really long amounts of time to make them a lot easier to use in those industrial settings. And this concept of cell-free, though it's been coined more recently, has fundamentally been around for decades, if not longer. There are huge processes that are already scaled using enzymes, biocatalysis across anything from making high fructose corn syrup with an enzyme that is already stable for over a year to BASF has a plant making acrylamide, a chemical used for water treatment, as well as a number of other applications with an enzymatic step. And of course, the friends at Solugen have been able to scale cell-free process as well for the production of a couple molecules. So when I think about the question of like, okay, what scale has this operated at? Actually, probably the largest scales that biology is operating at today is cell-free. It's just enzymatic steps because you're able to more easily move to continuous flows. And then instead of having a 100 mil, 150 mil batch bioreactor that's hard to control, you just have a tube with some enzymes and you flow through your feedstock and you get out what you want. The issue is being able to reliably stabilize any enzyme has always been a challenge and a challenge we feel like we've solved. It's interesting because two things. One is probably most people don't realize that enzymes are in a lot of everyday products, probably most notably detergents. Detergents have a number of enzymes that are produced in the hundreds of thousands of liters by companies like Novozymes. And what they enable is for clothes to be cleaned, usually without hot water. I mean, it used to be you had to use hot water to get a detergent waste soaps work. But once they put enzymes in there, you could get the effectiveness of the hot water and get clean clothes. You're doing the environment a solid. The other thing it reminds me of is this morning I was reading about people using detergents for DNA purification, like off-the-shelf detergents. Someone else is like, yeah, that's great. Just don't use any detergent that has nuclease because that'll dissolve the DNA. And it was just like this kind of hacker thread that I was smiling about as I read because I just love when people are like, oh, yeah, I can purify DNA and I can use an off-the-shelf detergent a lot cheaper than something that you would buy from a lab catalog. Yeah, I mean, there's trillions of enzymes all around us. It should be pretty cheap and easy to use and incorporate into more of our processes. So I think we're just getting started with what I like to call the enzymatic future. I love that. I love that you're the enzyme champion, the enzyme godfather. So you mentioned that there's other companies that are around. You mentioned Sullygen. And I think for our audience, especially for our biotech entrepreneurs, can you tell us what's different between what Sullygen is doing and what you're planning on doing or what you are doing now? 
Yeah. And I think a more apt comparison would be some of the other companies that are in this space called enzyme immobilization. We've talked a lot about using enzymes in manufacturing and continuous flows. And a lot of times when you do that, you want to attach it onto a solid substrate so it stays in place. If you have an assembly line, you don't want your machines just kind of moving everywhere. You want things vaulted to the ground. So there's this space of enzyme immobilization, been around for decades. Historically, it's been an art where it's just like you try some, it look like beads ultimately, and attach the enzyme onto there and hope it still works. We've transformed that art ultimately into a science. Being able to design these beads, design this enzyme body armor specifically for the enzyme by understanding what's the enzyme look like, what's its surface, what's the reaction conditions. And there's a few other companies that have raised tens of millions of dollars, such as Enzyme, Fabric Nano, and a number of others. The list goes on and on and continues to grow. We believe, thanks to the engineering approach of designing the resins for the enzymes, we really have a technology that will outperform not only with regards to keeping the enzymes lasting longer, but based on the composition of our materials, compete strongly on cost as well. We think this is a huge differentiating factor. For us too, thanks to a lot of the experiences I've gotten at Zymergen, our commercial approach is a bit different as well. We are oriented more as a platform to lift up the entire space and our, even our early customers work on anything from degrading plastics to making a healthier food alternatives to specialty chemicals like fragrances. And there's so many different verticals, but we're ultimately working with a ton of enzyme folks as opposed to some of our competitors that are like, all right, we, here's a specific molecule we're going after. Now let's spend five to seven years just trying to take this molecule to market. Even though we're a 10-month-old, 11-month-old company, we're already having impact in a number of different spaces and are going and trying to commercialize as fast as possible. I was curious if you could give us a very specific example of an application or an industry where your biocatalysis is making a significant impact or has the potential to do so. Yeah. At this early stage of implementing our technology, really, we're partnering with a lot of companies that already have enzymes. What we can then do is take an enzyme that, say, like lasts a day and we can let it last 10 days or longer. Or you want an enzyme to last under these higher temperatures or various process conditions, we can enable that. I don't want to go into details on a specific vertical to protect the information around various customers. But as I mentioned earlier, it's anything from breaking down plastics to making higher value food ingredients to these specialty chemicals. There's companies in our pipeline that are looking at biomining to making various materials. The list goes on and on. Enzymes are extremely versatile and diverse in their applications. So really, there's a lot that we're able to do. And how these customer engagements look like, someone comes to us with an enzyme, send it to us, we use our technology, we stabilize it, we verify it's better, we send it back. And in early days, we're doing that on a lab bench. But to me, it's important to scale as fast as possible. And we're already moving into the kilogram stage. But in the next one to two years, we want to be moving into the ton stage, manufacturing so much of this technology. And something I'll add on as well. We've chosen to start our commercialization approach this way. But our vision isn't just we're going to sell resins that stabilize enzymes. We believe this is a key step to becoming that best-in-class biomanufacturing company, starting with enzyme support systems, going to attach our own enzymes, going then to this concept of enzyme cascades that we named our company around. 
then go into the goal of going from any feedstock to any end molecule and really making it as easy as possible to develop that assembly line of enzymes. And what that'll unlock is not only greener ways to produce existing molecules, but much easier production method for incredibly interesting molecules that are just too hard and too expensive to manufacture today that will revolutionize therapeutics, materials, cosmetics, everything we talk about. I do have one quick question. The way that I think about enzymes is they typically have a blobby globular molecule that has one part of it that is actually where all the chemical magic happens. How do you guys ensure that that's the part that's exposed when it's embedded in your bioprocessor? Meaning, how do you assure that only the active part is on the outside of the bead? That's a little bit of a more technical question. Now, let's jump into the world on the molecular level. These beads are actually, it's not just the surface of the beads, but these are highly porous. So really think of it like Swiss cheese. And on the edges of the cheese, we grow our technology. We grow this body armor that we've been talking about. And it basically just looks like noodles. And these noodles surround the enzymes in a way that keeps them very stable and active. These noodles are also flexible. They're moving around. As you think about what goes on in a cell, it's a very highly cramped environment. So I think when I first tell people, oh, we're putting these enzymes in noodles, and they're like, oh, does that like crowd them out, block the active site? Right. They tend to function in a very crowded place inside the cell. And the enzymes in these noodles are just still moving around, they're still tossing, they're turning, but they're not clumping into each other, they're not aggregating, they're not unfolding. There's all these issues that enzymes typically face when you move them into these cell-free environments that we're able to solve. So I really think our technology in many ways replicates what's going on in the inside of a cell, providing the enzymes this space to keep them really kind of nestled in and stable and still keep them active, turning, tossing, allowing the active site to get access to the substrate and all these things. Got it. Yeah, it sounds like it's actually better than the cell because you have a little bit more control with your methodology. And that fact that your customers are actually these enzyme companies, you mentioned lifting the whole industry. That's, I think, incredible. In terms of, and I don't know if this is something you could share, but your go-to market strategy, are you looking to start working with some enzyme companies or are you going directly to people that are making products? Yeah, it's both. So I think about our business in two ways right now. And of course, this is still our first year of operation, but it's really one on the resin side, but two, we're selling this enzyme called a lipase. And lipase is actually, it's one of the enzymes found in the detergent and that's allowed it to come down a ton in cost. But as a biocatalyst, it's used from anything from making biofuels, pharma, processing fats to make fragrances, the list goes on and on. So we're going to market with that and have a few customers interested that want that lipase to last the higher temperatures or more solvents that our technology is just really great at being able to enable. So that's the two things we're really selling and commercializing. So it's a bit of both, working with the enzyme folks, but also working with folks making the downstream products as well. And that's helped by the fact that we can get lipases so cheap because unfortunately, most other enzymes are just really expensive to source at scale. And there's so many companies developing new novel enzymes, but it's still hard to get that cost effectively. So that's something that we're hoping to really drive the cost down as well, because you have all these incredible AI companies coming with all these novel structures in silico or on a lab bench, But still, to make that incredibly new design enzyme at scale, it's too expensive. We believe our technology should bring back those costs down. Yeah, I mean, that's the most important thing, getting the cost down. You mentioned that the beads where you have this body armor is your secret sauce. 
this is what's really helping enable the enzymes to last, last longer than traditional enzymes. How hard would it be for another company to either replicate this or I guess the other part of the question is, what are some of the challenges that you and your co-founder, James, who is hilarious, by the way, he's a great co-founder. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you some of the get challenges? get him on the pod for a follow-up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah James. Yeah, we, will. we will. We will. James, if you're listening. But what are some challenges that you're facing in this world? Yeah, I think there's two pieces to that question. I think yeah. the first piece is kind of around competitive mode. And yeah. the second piece is how's it going, yeah. ultimately. And I think, you know, we've got a great patent portfolio that really protects our core IP that James has been working on for years. So we're near the finish line on getting those granted across a number of jurisdictions. And we continue to add provisionals to protect different parts of, of the stack. And even without that, I'm so lucky to have met James, I think, nine years in to this innovation, being able to bring my industry experience to take his incredible technology and bring it to the world. Because what he's been working on is really fundamentally a material science innovation that tweaks the world in such a precise way at the molecular level that, as you could imagine, scaling those processes is difficult. Mm -hmm. And every week in the lab, we feel like we're making progress, we're heading in the right direction. We're learning new things. I feel one lucky that been developing and working on this for, for so long. And we've already gotten good commercial traction and starting to see ourselves scale. And then really it's the second piece where it's faster to iterate on material science than it is biology. If you wanted to tweak a bug, test it in a plate, test it in a fermenter, validate that a genetic change might improve that bug at scale, that's a six month, a very expensive process. For us to iterate on our body armor for enzymes is days. We can really then, you know, when customers send us product, we iterate our technology, build the resin, it's over within weeks. There are challenges, we're learning, we're growing, but we're lucky there are chemical problems that can be solved a lot faster than some of the stuff that I've seen in industry. Yeah, I mean, what you guys are doing makes me incredibly optimistic in so many ways. And I'm curious, what kind of energy do you need to, when I think about your column, the enzymes are put on the column and you're basically running your feedstock through the column, that's not a very energy intensive process, but how about putting the column together? I'm not asking for kilowatts, but where's the electricity used to produce this innovation besides it's, keeping the lights on? It's a great question. I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction because today these columns filled with enzymes tend to be the 50% of enzymes that don't need cofactors. And this is where you can do your cutaway, talk about what a cofactor is, but it's <laughs> basically... You know us. Basically the fuel source for a lot of enzymes, either if they need electrons or dump electrons somewhere, or if they need a thermodynamic push. That's where a lot of the energy will be needed for some of these cell-free processes. No one's really done it well at scale, is enabling this cofactor regeneration, as it's called, to unlock that other 50% of enzymes that are not necessarily being used at huge scales today. That is one of the things that we believe our technology is really well positioned to solve. And I won't go too much into the detail here as we've got a long development road ahead, but really you can imagine bringing in and plugging in these enzymes, if you will, onto our beads, onto our systems. And that will be critical to achieve this vision of cascades that I've talked about, these assembly lines of enzymes. So today, simple columns. I mean, I mean, more complicated than that, of course. You dump sure. some water in the top and your product comes out on the bottom. I know it's That's... not water. <laughs> Gravity column. 
There's yeah. nuances, process to process. And there's obviously, there's some reactions that could be thermodynamic. So you'll want to think about heat control. There's a lot of complexity to some of the processes, but still much simpler than the batch processes of trying to keep these microbes alive. All these different, the oxygen and a number of these other nutrients at a very stable level for the microbes to grow and, and thrive. It's a column. And continuous flow means you can get a lot more productivity with a lot less volume as well. How does it compare to, for our listeners, how does it compare to a brewery or a yeah. winery? Great question. So brewery, winery, it's all done fermentation. I've been lucky enough to tour the AB InBev, the Anheuser-Busch facility in St. Louis, which is just these gigantic steel tanks where you've got the microbes turn along for weeks. This concept of cell-free, and ultimately our vision would be, is you have these enzymes inside of the microbes turning the sugar feedstocks into the alcohol in the final product. What if you just remove that from the yeast, put it in a much smaller volume and tube, and just flowed over your malt and got out beer on the other end, not in weeks, not in these huge tanks, but in minutes or hours, because you're basically replicating what fermentation does without the need to have a living creature do that. It won't be easy to do, but 60 years ago, 70 years ago, if you're like, we're going to put billions of transistors onto a single chip and that's going to revolutionize the world, there's no way that was going to happen. Thinking about the enzymatic future, it's going to be not just single enzymes, which is where the in industry really is today, not just like a handful of enzymes, but there's really, I don't think a reason why not. You can't have thousands of enzymes in various products. And I think that's just going to completely revolutionize, honestly, the human experience, how we eat, how how we think about medical devices, how we think about sourcing our own molecules that we need, how we develop our cosmetic products and the level of precision, customization, well, that will unlock as well as how it really will feed into a very circular economy. I can't even really envision today, but I think there's so much potential and we're just at the start of a very long journey here. The speed and ease at which you described at least the brewing process rather than using yeast, but using cell-free, it just made me think about cell-free in space. So that's, that's where my head goes. Yeah. Like NASA, hello, have you talked to them? What's going on there? We should. Actually, it's an interesting question because obviously it's a future market, but there could be plenty of grants and problems that could be solved. As you think about what you want to bring into space, DNA is super small and DNA code for all these enzymes. And basically you get miniature molecular factories that you can just grow. And if you're able to effectively immobilize and make the cell-free systems needed, you could easily take your CO2, you're breathing out, replicate photosynthesis, probably in just a chip, get your oxygen back, get some sugars to eat. You could really confine these systems that are needed in a way that could make it a lot easier to explore the ends of the, the solar system and universe. Yeah. I mean, so that's amazing. Iram, you were thinking space and I was thinking beer and it's heresy to think about a brewery that doesn't have these big vats, but just has these continuously flowing columns that perhaps you divert towards the end and the enzymes that the liquid is going through are the ones that determine what the flavor is going to be. I know that from a brewer's point of view, that probably is heresy, but thinking about our future and actually applying it to like cultured meat just seems super interesting as opposed to, like you said, Alex, having to engineer a bunch of different micro to do this for you. Yeah, 
while I think people might say it's heresy, other people will see it as an opportunity to really take the enzymes from a yeast that's been making beer for a few hundred years, add a couple extra steps, enhance this part of the flavor, that part of the flavor. There's a company, I believe Berkeley Yeast is the name, that's tweaking the the enzymes inside of bugs. But why do you even need to do it inside of the bug? Just add this extra enzyme, take out this. It's really the control you'll give brewers over perfecting their craft, I would argue, will only further enhance. And I think we'll all benefit as a result. Yeah. We're going to get a lot of haters. (laughs) Oh, there's a lot of zero percent beers now. Athletic Brewing and a number of others as well. A lot of innovation has haters and people that are excited about it. Every innovation, I think, from time immemorial had haters. So it's just part and parcel of the process. So that's completely fine. Carl, I thought when you're going to reconcile the beer in my conversation about space, I thought you were going to go beer in space. Like that's where I thought we were going to go. But that could be something. And yeah, I think, Alex, this could be interesting for NASA and for you specifically, if you were just looking for non-dilutive funding. I mean, hello, that would be awesome. We always um, are. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was talking to someone and they were doing some kind of project, but they were doing some deep research, but they just decided to be like, all right, we're doing this research, but in space in order to get that grant. Any type of research, if you add in space to it, you are very eligible to get that money. So for you, for any of our other listeners, whatever you're doing on Earth, if you just add space to it, yeah. <laughs> taking it out outside, you know, there's an opportunity for you to get some non-dilutive funding there. Absolutely. Yeah. I and mean, let us know how that worked out. <laughs> hi, if anyone, yeah, anyone on the space, please reach out. Alex at Cascade Biocatalyst. <laughs> <laughs> but take it on this space piece. If you think about it, look outside beautiful New York City. There's enzymes that terraformed this planet. Every molecule of oxygen, cyanobacteria billions of years ago. And of course, the microbes get a lot of credit, but it's those enzymes inside of the microbes that were able to make Earth the home for life and humanity. And wow, hopefully will help solve some of the issues that we've created by manufacturing in such a dirty way over the last centuries. James has been working on this technology for nine years. The company is about a little bit more than a year old or going on a year. You guys have just raised some money. Why don't you talk about advice you would give yourself a couple of years ago as you're contemplating this? And what would your future self say to you today? It's such a good question because there's so many learnings, both tactically, spiritually, over the first year of this entrepreneurial journey. And I think for me, the most important part has been finding a great teammate. And when I first met James a year and a half ago through a common connection in the New York biotech community, actually, it was just clear that we had the same visions and completely opposite skill sets. He had this incredible technology to stabilize enzymes. And I'm like, so many biomanufacturing companies have failed because of costs and we need to drop the cost down trying to use biology and industry. And it was just the right time, right place. It's been great to, to just really grow the, the business together. So it's really just making sure you find that right partner who can really complement your skills and you could really just put it all on the line for to push forward each other's visions, technologies, and skill sets. I think what Future Self will tell me today is just to enjoy this part of the process. The earliest days of startup are an absolute roller coaster. A roller coaster can be fun. And I think if Cascade were to be successful and if for to be a whole big organization, there's got to be parts of just the nature of a bigger business that get probably a little boring. The earliest days and just building something new and taking a technology to market for the first time, just make sure to really enjoy it and appreciate that. And I am, but I sometimes lose sight of it when there's like millions of things to do. 
Yeah, that's definitely something that as a practice of taking time to reflect on how far you've come and where you're aiming to go. It's great that you're thinking about that. And I just love that you and James have this bromance. I mean, it's so, it's so nice to hear like founders that just really get along very well, that have very complementary skill sets without stepping over each other. It is everything, you know, companies are people. So as long as you get along and you guys have the shared vision, you're already far ahead of other companies that don't have that, that they're just professionals and not necessarily having a little bit more of a relationship, I guess. Speaking of your dream founders, who would be your dream client? If you could just open your Roldex or our Roldex and be like, yeah, we can bring them to the door. Do you have a dream customer in mind? I, mean, I know there's lots of them and all your clients are special. All of them are great. But if there's one that you could just on top of your head, be like, yeah, I would love to land them as a client. Yeah, I mean, it's Series A, Series B, Synbio startups, because those are the companies that will allow us to scale the fastest because they've got money now to spend. They're trying to scale their own processes. They want their own unit economics to look better for their investors. They're willing to take more risks on an early stage startup like ours. And that we've seen of our early customers, the ones that have been able to move the fastest, the ones that even though, like you said, all our customers are great, the ones that have been really able to get in the trenches and problem solve with us have been those early customers because we're in it together. We're both hoping we'll succeed. And they have enough resources as well to compensate us too for our efforts there. So it's really a win-win. So yeah, if you're any Series A, Series B, biocatalysis person, protein engineer, need an immobilization solution, give me a call. Let's run together. Get your process out there to the masses. Yeah, Yeah, I can think of a couple that we are going to send your way. Yep, that's how business is done. Right on the pod. Right on the pod. (laughs) Exactly. So as we start to wind down and you think about what does biotech look like in the next few years, what's your vision for biotech in 3, 10, 20 years? Yeah, I think in three years, and you're already starting to see this, we're chipping away at traditional industry. It's like, all right, we got this molecule now made in a greener way. We have this feedstock that we can now make more valuable thanks to biology. So little bits here and there. I think you'll see some more successes. I think Solugen will have a nice IPO probably uh, to build some more momentum. Fingers crossed that they continue to do well and spread that enzyme and cell-free story. But I don't think the world looks drastically different. I just think we make things in a greener way. I think in 10 years, fingers crossed, Cascade's very successful and a lot of the other companies in our space and our early customers are now using biology to really disrupt manufacturing across so many different verticals. I do think you're seeing completely new building materials materials being easily scaled. I mean, biology is an incredible builder. Just look outside. I think you see a huge potential of new molecules, new therapeutics that otherwise would be too hard or potentially expensive to make quickly enough to to allow them to properly be tested. I think that's true for a lot of natural products. I think there is, as I talked about, that vision for 20, 30, 40 years from now, what happens when you're able to put thousands of enzymes onto a small device and put that into people's homes? How does that completely revolutionize the way we engage with the molecular world across food, across consumer products, across various fragrances? I think as a result, we'll all become a little bit more of chemistry nerds, given we're able to tweak and customize that part of the world around us so much more precisely. Yeah, that's That's amazing. I love that. My mind's turning, so we'll have to get together and hang out and talk more about this. But you mentioned the building materials. My mind went to our friends at Prometheus Materials, which are making bioconcrete. 
it's okay, sustainable. Sustainability, just because of the nature of the companies that we speak with, just seems to be table stakes because we work in biotech. But the higher performance, the unique performance, the new performance characteristics are super exciting. With Prometheus, their materials, the promise is to make buildings that are blast resistant, that have better acoustics, that have better thermodynamics, because they ultimately are making materials that are similar to seashells. So a little plug for them, but to be able to have the level of control that cell-free is enabling without the complications and the unpredictability that some fermentations can have is just so exciting. It can do so much. I want us to talk more and see which companies we can help and have them think in a different way that cell-free could be the better way for them to manufacture their materials or ingredients. Yeah. It's a lot more, I like to say, direct to the point of trying to make what you need as opposed to getting a whole living creature involved. But they, I believe they've disclosed this publicly and if not, you should filter it out. But they use algae and other microbes to really grow their processes. But these microbes, these algae, they grow on carbon dioxide getting from a gas into liquid and enzymes can really help accelerate that. So as a plug for some of our product development that we're doing at Cascade, it's like a lot of the algae companies, if you want to really speed up that bottleneck, that's something that we are exploring and working on as well. So even if there are microbes, enzymes can help accelerate the growth of some of these microbes in that case. Well, given that your lab is in Denver and Prometheus is in Longmont, I think that should be an easy meeting to do. Yeah, we've chatted with Lauren and I'll probably follow up with him after this. Awesome. Was there anything, Alex, that we should have covered today that we didn't? I think one of my favorite lines that I haven't said yet is that nature is the world's greatest manufacturer. You can see it all around us. And a lot of people ask me, like, why I'm so optimistic on biotech and this sustainability push of climate bio. And I'm like, nature is billions of years ahead of us. We're making things in such a crude and polluting way. And now we can understand how nature makes molecules from renewable feedstocks at ambient temperatures all around us. And to me, it just feels inevitable. Obviously, there's a lot of challenges in taking new technology and allowing it to make impact at scale, but I just don't see how it's not the future. Whether it's nature and biology or stuff inspired from how nature and biology works, that's just the direction industry needs to go, not only because it's more sustainable, but because it's better. Yeah, you're here. I totally agree. All right. With that, let's close out this episode of the Grow Everything Pod. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate the time. And I'm sure we'll cross paths soon in the New York biotech ecosystem. Yeah, we will. Thanks. See ya. Bye. Bye. So, Carl, what'd you think about the episode? Alex is an awesome person. It was so great first of all, to meet him. You and I met him together about a year and a half ago. We heard about the path he was on and then he got funded. So now he and his partner are growing this company. And it's really always great to see our friends succeed. Just hearing what Alex and his company are doing and the success that they've had so far, I'm just very impressed and very happy for him and the Cascade team. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, Alex is the best. I mean, when I first met him, I really had to wrap my head around the concept of cell-free. I didn't really get it the first time he talked to me about it. The second time, it became more clear. 
The third time it was crystal clear. And now with this episode, I want to do cell free. It just seems like a no brainer for a lot of applications. It was very exciting to hear what cell free can do when it comes to biomanufacturing. And I really appreciated how Alex can stay on the surface and keep it exciting for people that don't know biotech too deeply. But then he can go deep on the molecular level, which he did do. His science communications is on point and why we're very friendly with him and it's just easy to talk with. I'm thinking ahead to next year. There's a big biopharmaceutical manufacturers conference that happens in New York City. It's called Interfex. Iram, you and I went to it a long time ago. I went this past year. I think we should get a group of our friends together and go to Interfex because it'd be really interesting to see their take on some of the bioprocessing things that are being shown there. There is a lot of manufacturing machinery that is shown at Interfex. And I think Alex would be a great guy to go there to kind of get his insights on that. The other thing that was super interesting about that conversation was his insights from Zymergen and the failures. Those insights are priceless. Yeah. Which insights do you feel like were the top insights? You know, I think understanding your market and knowing that there is a market that is going to buy your product is a huge insight. I know we do it in our consulting with clients and we always say you have to focus on your benefits. But even more than that, you need to make sure there's a buyer on the other end. And I think Zymergen thought they had a buyer with their film product, but then they really couldn't compete on cost. And you can only tell a biofilm story for so long. But that's really kind of summarizing a very complicated story. There was a lot of stories that were coming out. You could go on LinkedIn and read different weekend pundits writing about the Zymergen failure. It was a shame, but Alex came out of it stronger. I think what he said about understanding a market is really the key. What did you think? Yeah, similar to that, specifically, he pointed out that some of the team didn't have the industry experience to sell to electronics industries. So hiring people from the industry to sell into the industry is really important because they understand how to navigate the politics. I'm also curious to know, did Zymergen do customer discovery and the deep dives that we help our clients to do, which really gets to the heart of what the buyer's thinking. What are they going through every day? You might assume that there are specific challenges, which those might be it, but there might be other challenges before that main challenge is solved that needs to be solved first. The easiest way to find out is to ask. It sounds so simple, but it is very challenging because you have to get these people on the phone. And how do you do that? You have to have empathy. You have to speak their language. You have to meet them face to face, go to these conferences and talk to them and connect with them on LinkedIn. The first customer that I was able to close my previous company, which was selling into senior living, and I've never worked in senior living, is I connected with someone on LinkedIn and was asking questions and was just very interested in what they were doing. Like really, truly interested. It was very authentic. And that helped me close a sale. Didn't happen overnight, but did happen within three months, which hello, hello, B2B sales. If you're looking for some advice, give me a call. (laughs) Give us a call. Yeah, and I think the other big takeaway from uh, the conversation with Alex, and I don't think we've had anybody else really talk specifically about biomanufacturing. I mean, people talk about their products on this podcast, but we need more biomanufacturing methodologies and self-free is going to be one of the ways that ingredients, flavors, personal care products are going to be manufactured. Self-free is going to be part of that toolkit to be able to produce a lot of things biologically and move us away from the oil-based, fossil fuel-based manufacturing that we do today. 
Yeah. I think what was really cool about Cell-Free is that it could help make products cheaper. So the different enzymes and the different chemicals that we're making today. So could it make the detergent even more cheap than it is today? I wonder how much money the company would save. So detergent's one thing. Flavors is another if a company is making flavors with traditional chemistry or fermentation, how much money would they save using cell-free? And I think that would be a very interesting math problem. I'm sure Alex knows, and we should have asked him, but it was something I've been thinking about. I'm also curious if they use cell-free, does that change the end product at all in terms of flavors? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it does not. Yeah. Okay. One of the things we talk a lot about on Grow Everything is the people, companies, and ideas that eventually become billion-dollar companies. And it's easy to see how Alex could achieve that. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, of course I agree. Just from the episode, he talked about all of the industries that can be changed through Cellfree and his approach with the materials that they invented at Cascade. So it sounds like it's hard to replicate, but has so much value. And they're early. I haven't really heard of companies specifically doing what Alex does with using the body armor. He says he's a material science company. I love that. I love that he's using material science to leverage biology in a way that just completely blows traditional processes out of the water. And that's what a billion dollar company needs to do. Completely change the game, whether it's products, whether it's strategy, Alex and James have achieved both of those things. It's a pleasure to see Alex and James grow this company, see them in the beginning, see them check off the milestones. And Alex has such a good temperament. So does James. I'm sure they have their own moments where they freak out. But as Alex said, he's along for the journey. He knows that it's going to be a roller coaster, but roller coasters are fun. And that is spoken like a true billionaire entrepreneur. There you go. I think that's the pod. (laughs) Yes, that's the pod. So if you have any burning questions for Carl, myself, or Alex, or any of our guests, if you've listened to previous episodes, feel free to drop us a line. You can text us, call us. You can slide into our DMs. We're on Instagram. All the information is in our show notes. So please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. And that's it. That's the pod. All right. Happy Thanksgiving and see you later. 